You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 8 this morning. So that is page 894 if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles under your uh, seats. During this Advent season, we're looking at Jesus' fulfillment of what's known sometimes as the threefold office, specifically how Jesus is a better prophet, priest, and king than all of those prophets and priests and kings that went before him, and how really Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan, God's design for all of those roles, those leaders over his people in the Old Testament. If you've ever read parts of the Old Testament, if you were with us this fall, even as we went through the book of Judges, at their worst, the prophets, priests, and kings of Israel were the antithesis of the faithful servants that they were called to be uh, by God. But even at their best, they were just these small little hopeful glimpses. They were these foretastes ultimately pointing to the advent, the arrival, the coming of Jesus. Because in the end, No mere human, no one so pervasively affected by sin, no one so inherently broken could ever be what God's people truly needed as a leader, as someone over them. Last week, we looked at Jesus as king. This morning, we'll consider Jesus as prophet. Uh, And there really are so many texts in Scripture which speak about Jesus as prophet and all the implications of that. It was hard to narrow down. So I'm going to reference a few passages uh, as we make our way through things this morning. And you can follow along with me on the screen as we do. Uh, But our first and our primary text where we'll be today comes in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. So I invite you now uh, to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is John 8, and I'll start in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Skip down to verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, many believed in Him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, help us even now in these moments to know your ways. Help us even now in these moments to learn your truth. Lead us in your truth. Teach us. For you are the God of our salvation. 
And not only in Advent, but each and every day of our lives, it is for you that we wait all day long. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Amen. Amen. Three things uh, that we're going to talk about with the rest of our time this morning. Jesus the prophet, or how Jesus fulfills this office of prophet. Second, why it matters, the significance of his prophetic work for our lives. And then third and finally, prophets like Jesus, or how we get to reflect this office of Jesus in our lives to the world. So first, Jesus the prophet. Jesus the prophet. Uh, When you hear the word prophet, your mind might immediately jump to visions, uh, declarations of future events, or maybe even some of the crazy antics that the prophets of the Old Testament went through. Jeremiah in particular comes to mind, burying loincloths and cooking his food over his own feces and things like extreme, crazy things like this. These were aspects of what Old Testament prophets did. Most fundamentally, most fundamentally, prophets were revealers. They were revealers. They were human agents through which God revealed himself to the world. They spoke authoritatively on God's behalf. They proclaimed God's truth. They were heralds of the news of what God had done, what God was doing, and at times what God would do. And so when Jesus entered into the world, he did so as the pinnacle of God's revelation. As Jesus says here in John chapter 8, he speaks authoritatively on God's behalf. He does nothing on his own authority, but only as the Father has taught him. He only speaks the words of God. He only does the acts of God. But Jesus doesn't simply speak for God. He is God. He is God. As he says there in verse 12, I am the light of the world. John's gospel records seven, actually eight, really, I am statements of Jesus, where Jesus is claiming divinity, claiming even the holy covenant name of God, Yahweh, saying, I am God. And when he says here, I'm the light of the world, in the context of John's gospel, that takes us right back to chapter 1, John chapter 1, where Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And there, as John goes on to say, in Jesus is life, and his life is the light of men. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We saw a couple weeks ago, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then the author of Hebrews begins his letter like this. This will be on the slide behind me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in the former days, God spoke through the prophets, plural. In the last days, he has spoken to us through Jesus, the prophet, The one who not only speaks for God, but is, as the author of Hebrews just put it, the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. All of these New Testament writers are taking pains to prove that Jesus fulfills the office of prophet. And they're taking these pains to prove that because centuries earlier, Moses, one of the first and greatest prophets, speaking on God's behalf, 
promise this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And he goes on to say, The Lord said to me, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It's no coincidence that on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Mount of Transfiguration, an event recorded in multiple uh, gospel accounts, when for just a moment, Peter and James and John see Jesus' appearance transformed from his humbled earthly state to his glorified state. In that moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, who appears with Jesus? Moses and Elijah, prophets. Prophets through whom God revealed his law. Prophets through whom God spoke and revealed something of his own nature and character. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, echoing this promise through Moses from Deuteronomy 18, generations prior, God speaks and says, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet we are to listen to. In Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter then goes on to proclaim what he witnessed on that Mount of Transfiguration. And speaking about Jesus and referencing that promise to Moses, Peter says, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. And then, just in case we still aren't convinced of this, the author of Hebrews circles back around to it in Hebrews chapter 3 and says this, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has, has more honor than the house itself. And he goes on to write, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Jesus is that prophet like Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the better prophet which God's people have been looking for, have been longing for, for generations. And we've surveyed all of these texts this morning because I really want you to see how this is everywhere in Scripture. This is not a minor point tucked away into some corner of the Word of God. This is a thread that we trace through God's Word from beginning to end, that Jesus is the better prophet. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? What is so significant about Jesus' fulfillment of this office of prophet? Let's talk about that next. Second, why this matters. Why it matters. And look back here at John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. There are many implications of Jesus' prophetic work, but these verses get right to the core of that. Two huge reasons why this matters so much. They are revelation and freedom. Revelation... We can know the truth. And if we know the truth, freedom. The truth will set us free. How do we know what we know? Just a small philosophical question for you this morning. How do we know what we know? How do we know anything? Uh, we have our five senses. We have empirical data. We have 
gut instincts and feelings and reactions to things. We can know things through a variety of means. How do we know the truth? How do we know that what we know is real? Or is the best we can do, like Pontius Pilate, when he's exasperated and he stands next to Jesus when Jesus is on trial and he just says, what is truth? Is that the best we can do? Pilate, by the way, was ahead of his time. He was the first postmodern relativist. He was a pre-postmodern, whatever that is, relativist. We can observe and sense and know any number of things. Truth has to be revealed by God. Truth must be made known. It must be made knowable. And so we see throughout Scripture, God reveals truth first and foremost in creation. In it. And who was the agent of that creation? It was Jesus. He began his prophetic work as the agent of creation, revealing God and revealing truth by creating all that exists. God reveals truth in his providence, his ongoing care for all that he's made. He reveals truth in conscience, the way that he has formed your mind as a man or a woman, as an image bearer of God. But more than anything, God reveals truth through his word, speaking in many times and in many ways, as the author of Hebrews put it, through the prophets, speaking most of all through his son. So nowhere is God's truth more clearly revealed than in Jesus Christ. Nowhere more clearly than in Jesus. The word made flesh, or as Jesus will put it just a few chapters later, this famous interaction with some of his disciples in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And in that moment, in that interaction, Philip, one of his disciples, says right after, Jesus, show us God the Father. Show us the Father. That would be enough for us. We want to see him. And Jesus responds, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And why can Jesus say that? Because the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Because he is the image of the invisible God. Because he is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, we take this for granted, especially those of us who maybe have been Christians for some period of time in our lives, who are really familiar with these accounts and the teachings of Jesus. We might also take this for granted. You might also take this for granted. If you're one of the, the rare, lucky Christians who's never plagued by doubts, who just has like a, a very simple and childlike faith, and I rejoice that there are some people like that, but maybe you've never been upended in life to the point that you've really had to wrestle with questions like, what is truth and how do I know what I know? God's revelation is a gift without compare. It's a gift without compare. Apart from Jesus Christ coming into the world, the best you and I have is my truth and your truth. There's what's true for me, which may or may not be true for you. There's what's true based on my five senses and my gut feelings. And I would submit to you this morning that as much as people might enjoy or say they enjoy that kind of life, that is a miserable and confusing, a maddeningly confusing existence. If at the bottom, if at the foundation of your life, all you have are your five senses and your gut reactions to things. So really each and every day, but especially each Advent, we are meant to look upon Jesus the prophet, who in his incarnation is the pinnacle of God's revelation to the world. 
We are meant to look upon Jesus each Advent and say, blessed be God, he does not abandon us to the misery of relativism. He does not abandon us to the cruelty of a life where our circumstances and our senses are all that we have. No, we have Jesus. We have him. We have truth. Not my truth, but the truth. And in Jesus, as he says here, not only can we know the truth, but you will know the truth. And, verse 34, this truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from slavery to sin. So freedom, real freedom, is the result of God's revelation of truth. And both of these things, God's revelation of truth and freedom, are the result, they come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So back to the Mount of Transfiguration for just a moment. When Moses and Elijah appear and they talk with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, what do they talk about? We might remember that event in Scripture. Do we remember actually what they said? It's kind of a unique moment in the history of the world. We should maybe pay attention to what they talk about in that moment. Luke's Gospel tells us they speak of Jesus' departure. But that word departure in the original language, it's the word exodus. So they're not talking about Jesus waving goodbye. They're talking about Jesus leading his people out of slavery. That's, that's what they're speaking about together on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is about to trample the power of sin and death that has utterly ruined us and all of creation since the fall. He is about to invite fallen, broken, enslaved humanity, people like you and me, to follow him to freedom. In the first exodus, Moses led God's people out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But in the second exodus... Jesus, who is the prophet, who is the greater Moses, leads God's people out of slavery to sin. And if the Son sets you free, if the fullness of God, if the Word made flesh is the one that sets you free, that is true freedom. Then you are free indeed. Now, like the Jews speaking with Jesus here in John chapter 8, some of us are enslaved and we don't even know it. And we don't even know it. Verse 33, they say, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. But they were wrong. They had presumed upon their genealogy. They had presumed upon their pedigree, their religious activity. They had wound up enslaved to moralism and legalism. They were locked in this prison of trying to be better and do better never able to know for sure if they'd done enough. The only thing they had relying on the fact that they were descendants of a man named Abraham. Now for us, it might not be our genealogy or pedigree. It might be our religious activity. It might be our efforts to do enough good things to somehow earn the favor of God. It might even be, very ironically, our own efforts to assert our freedoms to assert our own autonomy. Sometimes we look at the, the commands of Jesus and the, the one who God says, listen to him, and we say, well, that sounds actually like slavery, to listen to Jesus. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to insist on my own way. I'm autonomous. No one can tell me what to do. And when we live that way, when we think that way, we actually are exposing how enslaved we really are. If you insist on your autonomy enough, you'll, wound, you'll wind up enslaved to yourself. 
which is perhaps the most dangerous form of slavery of all because you think you are free and you are not. We are prone to mistake slavery for freedom and freedom for slavery. And so some of us, maybe even in this moment, are enslaved and we don't even know it. Others of us, though, know it well. Addictions, fears, character issues, attitudes, things we just wish we could change about ourselves but cannot. Prisons and chains from which we long to be free. Jesus here is not promising you and I immediate freedom from all of our sinful words and thoughts and actions. What he is promising us, what he accomplishes, is that sin's power is broken and sin's penalty is paid. Sin's power is broken. In Christ, sin is not inevitable. There is never a moment in your life where you have to sin, where the power of sin is stronger than the power of Christ to set you free from it. And in whatever that sin might be in your life, that pattern of sin in your life might be, there is a way of escape. There is an exodus provided for you out of that. Also in Christ, the eternal penalty of sin has been laid on Jesus. And so that's why he can say, truly, eternally, both today and always, when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. So Jesus is the better prophet. We've seen some core reasons why that matters. Third and finally, let's consider how we reflect Jesus' role of prophet to the world, or in short, how we get to be prophets like Jesus. Prophets like Jesus. Because Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revelation, he's the pinnacle, he's it, there's no new or further revelation that we are waiting for. The reason that these last 2,000 years or so are referred to throughout Scripture, and we read that in Hebrews 1 a little while ago, as the last days, is because the one thing we wait for, the only act left in God's great work of salvation, is the second advent, is Jesus' glorious return. So, and I'm thankful for this all the time, and maybe you are too, it is not on you and me to be prophets the same way God spoke through prophets prior to Jesus. And I'm thankful for that because we don't have to figure out why something is the way it is today. That's not on you and me to figure out whether it's your own life or trying to care for someone else, why something is the way it is. It's not on us to try and predict what's going to happen exactly tomorrow or next year or five years from now. Christians try sometimes, and I wish they wouldn't because it makes us look silly. It's not on you to know that today. It's not on you to predict tomorrow. We certainly have no place to go beyond what God's revealed and attempt to speak for him in matters that are too high and too marvelous for us to comprehend. But while we wait while we anticipate Jesus' second advent, our role is to proclaim the fullness of his revelation in the first. It is to share the truth that God has revealed. It is to labor to see other sin-enslaved men and women as we once were, set free by the grace and the truth of the better prophet who was Jesus Christ. And to do this will require of us both courage and clarity. Courage and clarity. In 1989, a missionary and scholar named Leslie Newbegin wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And in that book, Newbegin says this, The relativism, which is not willing to speak about truth, but only about what is true for me, 
is an evasion of the serious business of living. It is the mark of a tragic loss of nerve in our contemporary culture. It is a preliminary symptom of death. Now, that was 1989, and that was the preliminary symptom of death. We may have died many times over in the 31 years since. But I love Newbigin's phrase, an evasion of the serious business of living. Sometimes we step back and think, I think about my own life or the lives of people around me, the world, the culture in which we live. Are we just playing around? Are we just playing around? Are we wasting our lives trying to figure out if my truth and your truth are compatible enough for us to have a conversation or maybe some semblance of a relationship? Or if not, are we just supposed to cancel each other and write each other off forever? That is an evasion of the serious business of living. To truly live, to be part of a pluralistic society where we really love other people means we are never content to settle for opinions and preferences and personal truth. Because these things, and we know this well in our own lives, do we not? These things are shifting sand. We're fickle. And my opinions and preferences today, how I feel today, my truth today, what's to say that's going to be my truth tomorrow, let alone 10 years from now? So we always point to and stand on the solid rock of truth, the solid rock of Christ. The liberating truths of the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Have the courage, as well as the compassion and the real love for other people, to embrace the serious business of living. We live in a day when it's normal uh, for people to express, whether it's using these words or some other form of this, express things like, I need to live my truth, or you do you, or however that might sound in, in our modern vernacular. Every time you encounter that perspective, because you'll encounter it if you're paying attention, every time you encounter that perspective, don't get angry. Don't get exasperated. Every time you hear that, thank God for the gift of revelation. That in Christ, you can know the truth that sets people free. That God was not so cruel as to abandon us to a life where we have to determine truth for ourselves. You can in those moments rejoice in the prophetic work of Christ, and then you can reflect that work by proclaiming Jesus and his truth. You can be part of God's rescuing people from the slavery of relativism. As we courageously pursue this, let us also do it with clarity. With clarity. Clarity about who Jesus is, about what he's done, clarity about what the gospel is, what someone really has to believe to enter the kingdom of God, to experience the forgiveness of their sin and reconciliation with God. In that same vein, let it always be clear to the world what is absolutely essential and important, not what is secondary and certainly not what is preferential when it comes to our faith in Christ. See, some Christians lack courage to be prophets at all. And we are prone to hide out in a corner and never speak the truth in moments when we need to speak the truth. Other Christians become so fixated on being prophets that they try to speak prophetically about everything. That they put everything or they put the wrong things into that category of non-negotiable gospel truth. This is one of the reasons that I deeply appreciate the work of an organization called the Gospel Coalition. I know many of you are familiar with it. Some years back, one of its founders, D.A. Carson or Don Carson, 
coined a phrase that explains their pursuit of exactly this. And he called it being prophetic from the center. Prophetic from the center. Carson puts it this way. If the gospel is merely assumed, while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the periphery. And then I love this next phrase that he says. It is easy to sound prophetic from the margins. What is urgently needed is to be prophetic from the center. From the center. What are you most passionate about when it comes to your faith in Jesus? What are you most passionate about? What truths of the Christian faith would you die for? And if in answering those questions, particularly the one that you're, about what, the one, what you're passionate about, if you assumed the gospel, if you kind of just skipped over the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and the reconciliation of people to God and went, well, actually, it's this cause that I'm passionate about. Or actually, it's the reformed distinctives of the Christian faith. Or it's something else, and you just assumed the gospel. Let this wake you up to that. Let this wake you up to, to where you are right now. It's easy to sound prophetic from the margins. It's easy to retreat to the mountains, to the fortress, where people agree with you, not only on the primary things, but also the secondary and third and fourth order things, and then lob grenades onto the world, to lob grenades even onto other Christians, other parts of the church that you deem unfaithful. That doesn't take much. That's easy. Immersing yourself in the midst of a culture where the gospel can't be assumed. And there, on the front lines, being prophetic about the gospel itself the things of first importance, as the Apostle Paul refers to them in 1 Corinthians 15. This is where our lives will be well spent. This is where our lives will truly reflect Jesus, the prophet. Jesus did not remain in heaven and lob grenades on the failings of humanity. He didn't build a bully pulpit or start a block. He entered in. He dwelt among. And at the same time he was fulfilling this office of prophet, he was called the friend of sinners. At the same time he was fulfilling this office of prophet, he was fulfilling another office, which we'll talk about next week, the office of priest, in which he bared with the weaknesses of his people. See, unlike Jonah, who sat off in the distance waiting for God to drop the hammer, Jesus on the cross, took the hammer upon himself, all while saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is our prophet. This is the prophet we reflect. So may you have the courage to speak and live his truth. May you have the clarity to focus on what matters most. Like Jesus, may you do so in ways that demonstrate you deeply love the people that you are called to be prophets among. Friends, truth can be known. In Christ, thanks be to him, truth will be known. And that truth is the truth that will set you free. Amen. Let me pray for us. Strengthen us, O oh God. In the power of your spirit, to be people who bear witness to truth, who speak good news to all people, but even as you call us in particular to speak good news to the poor, to lift blind eyes to sight, to loose the chains that bind and claim, and to claim your blessing on peoples from every tongue and tribe and nation. Keep us faithful in the service 
of Christ until he comes in victory. Until that day when we shall feast with him and with all the saints in the joy of his eternal realm. Through Christ and with Christ and in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, Jesus. You are the greater Moses. You are the prophet. And you reign with God and with the Holy Spirit now and for all eternity. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.